Well, welcome everybody. Glad that you're here this morning. Today is the final day in kind of our season of Epiphany, the season when we tell these great stories about the life of Christ. And then um, we ask ourselves kind of two questions. What is being revealed here about God and us in the world? And then how do we respond? And so it's the season where we agree to actually make some changes in our lives in response to who Christ is. And today is kind of the pinnacle of the season Transfiguration Sunday. It's kind of the high point of Epiphany. And our story for today, for today begins um, by telling us Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him, and he went up on this mountain to play, or to pray, kind of play. <laughs> paging, paging Dr. Freud. <laughs> well, I'll explore what that slip means with my analyst later. But mountain, it, it, when you hear mountain, if you've spent any time in the scriptures, you know this is kind of a symbolic thing. Mountain, mountain is a theme in the scriptures that runs throughout the story of God. And so he's on a mountain. This isn't a throwaway detail. And it says, as he was praying with an R, not an L, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Now, this is happening in Luke 9, and a lot has happened in Luke's gospel. You know, Luke gives a ton of detail that the other writers don't give. Stuff like the angels with Mary and Joseph and the angels with Zechariah, with um, Elizabeth and John the Baptist. The stuff about Mary's song, Zechariah's song, Simeon's song. The whole really birth narrative comes from Luke. Angels, shepherds, um, his dedication at the temple, uh, his trip there as a 12-year-old where he stayed behind. All that stuff is, is Luke's deal. And then he, he gives this detail that Jesus, in addition to like healing and teaching, has started forgiving people of their sins. He says this to folks. By the way, we should notice he has not died or resurrected yet, and yet he's doing this. And he also starts messing with their Sabbath practices, which is like ground zero for the Hebrew faith. And then he delivers his famous Sermon on the Plain, which we've covered the last few weeks. Blessings to um, all the wrong people. Woe to those on top. Love your enemies. Give generously. Do not judge. And Luke records then all these miracles and teachings. Um, he heals the centurion's son, if you remember, from afar, like at a distance, which is weird. He raises his little boy from the dead. He was anointed by this woman for burial. He told the parable of the sea, um, seeds and the good and bad soil. He um, calmed the storm on the seas, cast out demons from that guy and put him in the pigs who ran and drowned in the sea. 
healed the woman with the flow of blood. He raised Jairus' daughter. And then comes chapter 9, where we're reading today. The first thing he does there is send, sends his guys out two by two to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near and to heal the sick. And so his ministry kind of goes from this sort of localized thing to this regional thing to the point where Herod, King Herod, even heard about it. He was perplexed. He starts asking kind of this question we've been saying is the question Luke is constantly asking. Who is this Jesus? And they, they of course, tell Herod, like, um, one of the things at least they tell him is um, people are saying it's John the Baptist come back to life. He's like, I already cut John the Baptist's head off. Like, do I have to do it twice or just once? And, and he's like, who did... Who did who people saying this guy is and can I see him? He wants, he wants to see him. So now even Herod is asking Luke's big question. Who is this Jesus? And then after all this, the disciples head back home up to Galilee, probably Capernaum. And when they get there, 5,000 people are waiting on them. And there's the big, you know, feeding them all miraculously, healing them. And then they go away further. He takes his guys and they go far away. And then even Jesus asks this question. Who, who does the crowd, who do the people say that I am? He says. So Herod asks it. The people are asking it. Now Jesus is asking it. And they say, well, the usual suspects, you know, John the Baptist, maybe Elijah or one of the prophets. And then he asks them, who do you say I am? And Peter kind of gives this right answer, though he doesn't even really know that he did. He says, you're God's Messiah. And then Jesus says, you know, they're going to kill me, right? The leaders. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. And he says this famous line to them. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. They have to go where I'm going. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, he says. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And then the very next thing is our story for today. Peter, James, and John up on this mountain to pray. They had already seen a lot of things they couldn't explain. I mean, this guy healed leprosy, paralyzed people. He raised people from the dead. And of course, they're asking, who is this guy? But nothing would compare to what they were about to see. They, they climb up on this mountain, and we're told that they immediately start to fall asleep. And in, in ancient literature, sleeping signals to us um, they're uncomprehending, right? They, they don't get what's happening right, which is often all our problem. We're kind of in this drowsy fog. We can't really see what's happening, especially in re relationship to God. God is just a mystery that we often sort of sleep through. Barbara Brown Taylor says it this way. She says, it, it was as if the Almighty had sifted sleeping powder over their heads to protect them from the things they were not equipped to see. That seems right to me. They weren't, they weren't ready for this because, you know, like, who can be ready for something like this? Jesus is praying like they had seen him do thousands of times, and then his face changes, and he starts to light up like a Christmas tree. He's emanating this light. It says it looks like lightning, and a thick cloud descends on the mountain, overshadowing him. And these two men are with him, um, Moses and Elijah, and they actually hear, they think, the voice of God. Now, all of this, especially us at this time, all of this should be making us think back to this summer in our study of Exodus, right? Remember when Moses goes up on the mountain himself um, on Sinai and the thick cloud comes over that mountain and lights things up and Moses hears the voice of God. 
And Moses, it's funny, he didn't know it until he came down. But his face was glowing, it said, shining brightly, like Jesus' face is mentioned here. And it freaked everybody out. In fact, when he got down, he had put a veil over his face to calm everybody down. In fact, this is one of my favorite sculptures. This is Michelangelo's um, sculpture of Moses. Notice anything odd about it? Like, yeah, what's with the horns? Moses looks like a demon or something. Well, it turns out the Hebrew word for shining is karan, and the Hebrew word for horn is karen. And they, they, when they, in Hebrew, you don't record the vowels. It's just the consonants. And so some interpreters, including apparently Michelangelo, concluded Moses' face had sprouted horns. But it was shining. And everybody agreed, like, something weird has happened to Moses here. He spent 40 days on Sinai, got to encounter God, and um, asked to, to really see God. And so God wedges him in, in, in a cleft of a rock and passes by. So Moses only saw his back or saw where God had just been. And even that was enough to light him up like a Christmas tree. It's funny, in the story of God, this is one of the things that they recorded and remembered often that um, what God often does is God will shield God's self um, from the people. God will shield the people from the full impact of God's deity, God's being. We said that no one can look upon the face of God and live. And so God's presence was often hidden in the scriptures by a cloud. And the cloud would light up sometimes brighter than the sun, they said, or lightning. These are two, the two brightest things they know. Almost like a doorway to another dimension. And even if the door was closed, like shafts of light somehow leaked through and um, hit people sometimes, disturbing those who saw them. And for lack of a better word, the people sometimes called this light God's glory. Sometimes they'd be worshiping, the light just would show up. And the brighter the light, it usually seemed to be the th to protect the people from the full weight of God. Sometimes it was so thick they couldn't even see each other. All they could see, Barbara Brown Taylor again, was a dazzling brightness that left stars in their eyes long after it was over. But no matter how strong it was, how palpable, God remained hidden inside of it. And this is revealing something about God's nature. God is um, not a thing that we can see with our eyes. God is not a thing at all in the normal sense. God is, in a sense, beyond thingness. Like, he's not a thingy thing. He's just, God is just a very, has a different, completely different category of being. And so seeing God is tricky business. Like, when people start saying they've seen God or heard from God, I usually are like, I have to go now, right? <laughs> and so the presence of God in this story of God is always symbolized as shrouded in mystery. They, used, they couldn't see God, but they could get a sense of where God had been, maybe. Still kind of on fire with the glory of God. And they would mostly hide their faces because it was more that they could... Bear. Only Moses was different. He asked for more. And still, all he was able to see was where God had been, and even that lit him up like this glow stick. I mean, you kind of picture it. Moses um, had gone up on Sinai, Sinai for 40 days, 40 nights, 
Last time, by the way, he did this, he came down to the golden calf incident, so he had to be a, a little, you know, quaking in his boots as he comes down. But this time they rushed to meet him, and when they got close, they were like, oh no, something has gone wrong with Moses. Like, fear rushed through their bodies, and they, they back off from him. And this wasn't even an encounter with God. This was the afterglow of an encounter with God. It was um, just where God had been that had impacted Moses so much he was going, they all back away. Even Aaron didn't want to get close. He had to convince him to come close. Finally, they did. He read him the Ten Commandments. And really, from that moment on, Moses wore a veil over his face all the time so he wouldn't, wouldn't frighten the children and inspire, you know, energizer bunny jokes or things like that. And so anytime Moses went to speak with God, he would come back with this veil off and his, somehow his, his skin, his face glowing so they could see that he had been with God and, and know that um, God had spoken, that God was with them. And then he'd report what God had said and he'd veil his face up again. And after the, a while, the people got used to this. It's part of how they knew God was real and how they knew God was with them. They could see it in Moses' face. And if they couldn't see God directly, at least they could see God's glory reflected in the face of another human being, in, in their friend, Moses. And so he became someone they could look to to mediate God's presence. A similar thing happened with Elijah. He climbed, many people think, the same exact mountain as Moses. And the Lord told him to stand in the mouth of a cave because the Lord was going to, to pass by. But he needed him, of course, to be protected in this cave. And a powerful wind tore at the mountain at his feet. And an earthquake uprooted the trees and a fire ripped through the valley before him. But it says the Lord was not in those things. When the Lord showed up, it was in the sound of silence. Maybe a whisper. First Kings 19 tells us that when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He veiled his face. Just like Jesus, or just like Moses. Now, Peter, James, and John, they were raised on these stories. And so when Jesus climbed a mountain and um, met with God and lit up with a glorious fire and a thick cloud descended on the mountain, obscuring things, and, and they heard this voice. And then, especially when Elijah and Moses show up, these two great luminaries of the Old Testament, no pun intended, um, they, they knew exactly what was going on. I mean, this is really actually kind of on the nose for, by Jesus' standards. The same cloud, the same voice, the same presence, the same light. God was showing up. It was epiphany. It was a theophany. Only for Jesus, the light didn't seem to be reflecting from somewhere else. He was just crackling with the presence and power of God. It's like Moses and Elijah were like the moon, and Jesus was like the sun, the source of light. And Moses... Moses and Elijah are apparently just really cool with this. They just stopped by for a little comment, a little chat with Jesus, the human welding rod. And we're actually told the topic of their conversation, which is crazy. It says they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. But in the original language, the word is not departure. You know what it is? Exodus. It says Exodus. So... Moses had his exodus. 
where he delivered the people from bondage out of Egypt. Elijah had a kind of an exodus, delivering his people from bondage to Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. And part of what's being revealed here in this transfiguration story is that Jesus is doing an exodus thing, delivering his people from bondage to the powers and principalities that enslaved them, both the power of sin and death and, you know, the powers of the political powers that were making them miserable. And he said, I'm bringing good news to the poor and the left out and the left behind. So to a Jewish reader, this, this thing is just filled. This story is filled with symbolism. Moses, who represents the law, um, for a while they thought, they thought they had God kind of sorted out in the law. This is what God wants from us. We follow these rules, these customs, and we'll see God and God will show up for us. But some would keep the letter of the law and, and just treat their neighbors like trash. And so then along came the prophets. And Elijah, of course, represents the prophets. So you have Moses and Elijah, the law, the prophets. And for a while, the, the, they thought they had God figured out through the prophets. You know, treat your neighbor with justice and, and mercy. Finally, you'll see God. God will take care of you. But the, of course, the wealthy could never do it. And if the leaders weren't doing it, nobody could do it. And so... That's when Jesus shows up and he began to teach them that the kingdom of God was near, that God was actually um, always with them anytime they were with another human being because God is living inside all of us. He would teach them if we begin to live together in this you know, cross-formed, cruciform way, um, this self-emptying love, taking up our cross, that God will sort of explode into the world through other people. And it's kind of strange, and I think important to notice that the only people who could really hear this consistently in the story were those who were just desperate to see God for whatever reason, <clears throat> often those living on the margins, those who were left out of God's blessing by the law, by the prophets even. You think of Mary's song, Jesus will lift up the lowly and bring down the proud. Think of his first sermon there in Nazareth from a few weeks ago. The spirit of the Lord is upon me and it has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And, and especially the, this day of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. He, he preached over and over really that it's the people who think they have God sorted. They, they almost never do. In essence, he was teaching that God is most often lost by being thought found. As soon as they thought God was sorted out in the law, that's, that's the Moses piece, the law kind of had to change in, in their understanding of it. As soon as they thought that God sorted in the prophets, that's Elijah here, the prophets had to, to change. And as soon as Peter and James and John thought they had God sorted through Jesus, then even Jesus had to go away or change at least. And over and over, he just pushed them back to this idea that the presence of God is not far off with layers and layers in between. But he pushed them to attend to God's presence in, in each other and especially in the poor, in whatever way you could 
Imagine that. That's really the meaning of the part where Peter says, let's make three tents and just stay here on the mountain. Tents is the word um, tabernacles. It's the same word from the Gospel of John where it says Jesus, the word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. So this is all intertwined with who Jesus is. And Jesus is like, now let him down the mountain, um, swearing them to secrecy, kind of pushing them back toward each other. Because anytime you think you have God sorted, you kind of run the risk of removing the mystery. Eventually, what you always end up doing is you just turn God into an idol. And so God always comes to us shrouded in mystery because God has this whole other way of being that's just always beyond us. And so really the only way to see God is to learn to attend to the mystery. Whereas the mystics say to enter into the great cloud of unknowing. And yet, we spend much of our lives trying to drain the world of mystery, right? Trying to name things and explain things and control things. And so maybe it's not so surprising that it has become in our time so difficult to believe. The people of God have always talked about the way that like at these certain kind of breakthrough moments, the presence of God becomes discernible, almost undeniable to human beings. But it's almost like the closer God would draw to the people, the more crazy human beings get. It's like when you're trying to put your kid to sleep with, when they're little, you try to lock them down. I had a whole technique for locking them down. The more you lock them down, like the more they bridle against it. It's God is just too big and infinite and beyond us. When God draws close, it makes us a little nutty. And so the veil is, is necessary. A little cloud cover to keep people safe. But what's revealed here in the transfiguration is that um, we kind of had this part wrong about God in our way of understanding God's way of being in the world. Jesus is messing with it. It's like God is not in some far off country only showing up now and then in ways that are so overwhelming to mortals that they can't hardly stand it. No, God is everywhere. God is always. Not up and out somewhere, down and in. The nitty gritty of life. Unavoidable in a sense. And most of the time, it's, it's just the poor and the brokenhearted ones who are actually desperate enough to discern God's presence. It's, it's the people with no place to go who will stay until they can see it. It's the quiet ones who finally can discern the still small voice. Jesus revealed that God isn't just found in, you know, like mountaintop lawgivers and prophets, the great ones, like Moses, like Elijah. Because God came shining through that day a nobody, a peasant, from the sticks in Galilee. It's backwoods, unsanctioned teacher, a card-carrying member of the least of these. And in a sense, he was saying the veil is kind of removed. I mean, it's there. It's there when we need it. But it's sort of re removed, at least for those who strive to see the mystery of God's presence, to 
see the face of God shining through the face of others. And God can be found shining through ordinary human beings like you and me. Paul said it this way when he's talking about Jesus in 2 Corinthians. This is so great. I'm reading from the message version because I love it. It says this, Unlike Moses, we have nothing to hide. Everything is out in the open. He wore a veil so the children of Israel wouldn't notice that the glory was fading away. By the way, that's, Mo- that's uh, Paul throwing shade hard on Moses right there. They, they didn't notice it then, and they don't notice it now. Don't notice that there's nothing left behind that veil. There he's talking about the veil in the temple too. Another veil. Keeping the people from God. Even today when proclamations of that old bankrupt government are read out, they can't see through it. Ouch. And then he says, only Christ can get rid of the veil so they can see for themselves that there's nothing there. Meaning God's not locked away behind a veil. God is out everywhere in the faces of one another. Whenever they turn, he says, to face God as Moses did, God removes the veil, and there they are, face to face. They suddenly recognize that God is a living, personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete, and we're free of it, all of us. And then he kind of sums it up. Nothing between us and God, our faces shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured, much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. And and really, this is what it means to be a Christian It's the end of the far-off God. God is present, Jesus said. Whenever two or three are gathered together in his name, that means living life in his name, trying to let his life be our life. God is revealed through normal human beings who bear God's image. And he said, if you take up your cross and follow me, if you you follow Jesus, you, you become renewed and renewed and renewed in the image of God as God begins to shine through us, as Paul said, a living personal presence, not a chiseled piece of stone. Our faces begin to shine with the brightness of God's face. We, he says, can become transfigured like our Messiah. Our lives becoming more bright and beautiful, bearing witness to the God who is as we become more and more human as human is meant to be. We're meant to believe that, as Barbara Taylor um, once wrote, that the world is made out of light, which is straining against the skin of the world, even as we speak. You never know when a face may begin to shine, including your own. But even when we cannot see the light, we believe in it, because we have heard the stories We know that God's glory is pulsing just beneath the surface of things with the power to transfigure the darkest of our days. And it's always the darkest of the days when it's really hard to believe that God is still here 
still present. This coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of the season of Lent. And, and there's a sense in which I think Lent is basic training in seeing the mysterious presence of God. During Lent, we do these little fasts. We give up sweets or, or coffee or, or something small. And when we do, what we're trying to do is open up a little space for God to learn to see God, you know, where chocolate used to be. And now there's just frustration, right? <laughs> and of course, this causes a little discomfort, a little pain. The idea is if we can learn to see God in the little pain, maybe we can discern God in the big pain when it feels like we're being wrecked. We do these religious things um, where we try to discern God on the mountaintop, so to speak, so that we can also maybe learn to see God in, in just the ordinary, everyday things. And it's often in those those big moments, you know, the death of a parent, you, you fall in love, you get divorced, you have a baby, your baby leaves home. And those kind of mountaintop type of moments that, that we search hard for meaning. Often you'll hear somebody um, who doesn't even believe in God, like holding their firstborn child and like casting about for somebody to thank. And all of a sudden they have doubts about all their doubts about God. There's a kind of meaning in, in those big things that's, that's somewhat undeniable. Even a committed atheist starts to pray. And for us, I mean, we're, we're trying to train ourselves. If we can see God in those, those moments when life is sort of glowing, lit up with the presence of God, or maybe has hit us with a, like a fog, the fog of, you know, loss and pain. Maybe we'll, we'll learn to discern God in, in the everyday trials. Because, I mean, that's where, we, that's where we live. We live not on mountaintops, just in every day. There's this famous um, quote by a woman named Paula D'Arcy that I love. She says, God comes to you disguised as your life. And I think that's right. God comes to us just disguises your life. And I think that's much of what Jesus is trying to get us to see. That it's, it's the ordinary days, it's the ordinary people, it's the ordinary tasks God comes to us, shrouded in mystery, for sure. But if we'll train ourselves to attend to the mystery of the divine in the ordinary things, then I think we'll see God. I think we'll see God. Especially if we agree to take up our cross and live in this cruciform way. And I know it's easy to believe that it only happens for the saints and the mystics and the people who have, you know, long years of practicing or whatever. But I, I really do think that's the whole point of this story. It's not. It's not for the saints. It's just for you, man, and me. It's for the ragamuffins. I heard this story once about a mom who was trying so hard to see God in her own life. And she was just juggling. She had a, a career, she was juggling work and home and family, but she would um, try really hard to, to get up early every morning to pray. But no matter how early she got up, she had young kids, her kids would get up. Did that happen to you? Whenever you get up, they're just up. Like, even though I found, I mean, I knew exactly where to step in the house to not creak the floors. Um, they would still wake up. Anyway, this is happening to her. 
And so she would get up early to pray, but then her kids would get up and interrupt her. And she was getting frustrated. She had she got a spiritual director to talk to her, to try to lead her. And in this moment of frustration, she said, you know, I see all these icons of the saints, you know, and, and I want to know where's the icon of the mother with one child on her lap and one on the floor and dinner burning on the stove and everyone screaming. Like, where's that icon? That's my icon. And her teacher was wise. She said, okay, I'll pretend. I'll, I'll just play the character of God here. Say this again, and then I'll respond to you the way I think God was. So the woman went into much more detail this time, a lot of lamenting what's happening. And her teacher said, okay, this is what I think I would say to you. And it was something like, you know, I just love you so much. And I see the way you try and the way you live. And I'm so proud of you. And you are so precious to me. I couldn't love you any more than I do right now because I just love you completely. And I can't get enough of you and your life. And I'm really pleased that you get up early to be with me. It means so much to me that you would do that. It means so much, in fact, that sometimes I can hardly stand it. And so what I do is I rush into the bodies of your children and I wake them up because <laughs> I want to know what it feels like to be held by you. And it's beautiful to me. It's just my favorite thing. I rush into the lives of your children and you hold me. And it's, I think it's something like this is what Jesus is trying to show us. God is never far off. God is always in the person next to you. But you have to attend to the mystery of the divine in them. And what she was saying is that um, God's stance is, you hold me when you hold your kids. Or whatever your life is, you, you treat me well when you treat the least of these well, Jesus said. You, in a sense, in our day, like, you're a good boss to me when you're a good boss to your, your people who work under you. You're a good neighbor to me when you're a good neighbor. Every, every way of relating is a chance to relate to God if we can see the mystery that is revealed in the transfiguration. That's how it works. Jesus breaks it down to just the simplest thing. God is everywhere. God is always and God comes to us disguised as our life, shrouded in the mystery of the divine. We just have to learn to attend to the mystery, to see the presence of God in everyday, ordinary things. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this story and for the way you keep coming after us and you take away the barriers. And it's both just, just lovely and kind of you, but also it just scares us that you keep taking them away because we use them to keep, to keep you at a distance and to make ourselves feel safe. So I pray as we um, enter into the season of Lent, that you would make us brave um, to take on some Lenten practices and begin to see you. That we open up some space 
to try to find you. Not in some like mountaintop thing, but just in the everyday. So at the same time, we just, we say we're so grateful for Jesus and all that he has revealed. And we're so afraid and we're so broken and we need your grace. We need your help to do this. Amen. I invite you to stand if you would, please. And we're going to receive communion now. Um, the way we do it at Redemption is we just, the ushers release us, we come forward row by row, and you'll be offered um, the little COVID safe package, and they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, um, just respond however you like. Say amen or say I will remember or however you'd like to respond. We do this because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after he had given thanks for it, he, he passed it around and had all his guys take a chunk of it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and, and blessed it, and they passed it around. Everybody took a sip from the cup, and he said, this, this cup is a new covenant, a new deal in my blood, blood meant life, a new deal in my life. And he, he said, whenever you gather after I'm gone, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life in, into your life, be made of the stuff I'm made out of, and then go be my hands and feet in the world. He said, every time you gather, do this. And so that's why we receive communion. And that's also why we just invite anybody who calls on the name of Jesus to join us at the table. Um, so would you join me in praying a blessing? Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink, a means of your grace. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world um, feast on us and taste and see your goodness all to the glory of Jesus Christ our risen Savior who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God now and forevermore Amen Will you come?